expositional preaching is our desire as a church to week by week go through books of the Bible. And you may ask, ask yourself, if you're not familiar with that term or that practice, why is it that Redemption Community Church and other churches choose to preach in such a way? I mean, wouldn't it be easier for you to choose a bunch of topics that are really relevant to our uh, age diversity and cultural diversity? Um, and I guess some people would say, yes, that's easier to do that. Um, I would make the argument that it's easier to preach book verse by verse through the Bible um, because you're not always one scrambling for some new idea or some new topic. Uh, you're just literally moving through um, the next section of Scripture. Uh, but the greatest importance of expositional preaching is because we want to look at the text of Scripture and we want to ask one fundamental question. What did God intend for the original audience to read in this text, to understand from this account? Because what was relevant to them is relevant to us. See, that's the, that's the power of God's Word. It transcends cultures and history and time. It is just as relevant for us. Now, we, we dive in and we study and we understand. So by the, by the simplistic way to say, the way that God wrote the Bible in a historical framework, we study the Bible in a historical framework. We want to understand it in that way. In a book by a man named Mark Dever, who has written many books for the church, but one in particular, he makes a very interesting point about expositional preaching. He writes, In preparing my normal expositional sermon, I am often a bit surprised by the things that I find in the passage as I study it. Generally, I don't choose a series of expositional sermons because of a particular topic that I think the church needs to hear. Rather, I assume that all the Bible is relevant to us all of the time. I bring that up this morning because I would wholeheartedly agree with Mark Dever. And this particular week was one of great example. As I read through this passage this week in Marth, Matthew chapter 17... We have been studying through the harmony of the Gospels, and so our desire has not been to study one Gospel writer, but because all of the Gospel writers were telling one story, we are walking through what's called a harmony of the Gospels. So if you take Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you lay them on top of each other, there is a single, solitary story about Jesus. And what's what we want to study? So some weeks, we're jumping to Matthew. Some weeks, we're jumping to Luke and to Mark and to John. And we're doing that because oftentimes, those individual writers would tell a portion of Jesus' story that another one didn't. That doesn't make the story untrue. It would be just like if you go to a family reunion today after church, 
and, and you all are there at the family reunion and, and you witness one thing and someone doesn't catch that and you document this story and you document that story and, and you lay all those things on top of each other. You're at the same place. You're describing the same things, but there may be different types and variations in that story pointing to the same idea. So as I'm studying this week, I'm, I'm coming and approaching the text and uh, the, the, the most important and the most critical rule in expositional preaching is do not come to the text with any preconceived ideas. Allow the text to teach you. Otherwise, you could go in all different directions. And so in Matthew chapter 17, we're coming to the end of this chapter And we come to a story that only Matthew has in his gospel. Mark, Luke, John, they don't have this story. They have, if you see in verses 22 and 23, they have the second uh, foretelling of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell once again, or they document Jesus reminding his disciples of his imminent death, burial, and resurrection. But then they move on to what we see in Matthew 18 as a discussion from the disciples about who is the greatest. But in Matthew's account, there's this one story, and maybe if you grew up in Sunday school, you remember this story about Jesus telling Peter to go and get a, to cast his hook into the water and pull out a fish because there's going to be a coin in that fish's mouth that's really important. And as a kid, I don't know, I don't remember what in the world I learned from that story besides, wow, Jesus could do some really cool things. So as I'm studying this week, I get to that passage and I'm like, okay, I got this second foretelling of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. We've, we've already covered that in the weeks past about the necessity of Christ going to the cross. He was willing to go to the cross on our account, that he was not being dragged, kicking and screaming. He willingly gave his life for uh, the, the sins of the people. We talked about the fact that he would be killed, that he, he didn't faint on the cross. He, he died on the cross, that his atoning death was the sacrifice that was necessary for the salvation of souls, for the reconciliation and the peace between sinner and God. And I'm thinking, how am I going to tie these two sections together? Because in verses 22 and 23... It's just this little bitty blurb, once again, where Jesus is reminding his disciples. And then you have the story of the temple tax. And I was reminded, once again, of the beauty and the continuity of God's word. So buckle up and let's learn how these two small sections of scripture that Matthew talks about point us to the grand narrative of God's redemption for all mankind. Maybe a little different than what you learned in Sunday school, but in in the end, you're going to see the beauty of how God has made all these pieces of the puzzle fit perfectly together to bring glory to his son, Jesus. 
Matthew uh, 17, starting in verse 22, let's look at this together. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day, and they were greatly distressed. And when they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From who do kings of the earth take toll or tax from their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not, not to give offense to them, go to the sea, cast a hook, take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. April's coming up, it's tax time, it'd be a great sermon to talk about how, as Christians, we should pay our taxes. But we're going to go a little bit deeper than that this morning. Let's first look at how Jesus, once again, is proclaiming the often misunderstood plan of redemption. If you notice in Matthew chapter 17... Again, as I said, Jesus has already told these disciples once, I must go to Jerusalem, I must be delivered into the hands of men, I must be killed. And they're wrestling with this truth. They have come to understand in in some form of who Jesus is, that he is no mere man, that he is the promised Messiah, the one they've been waiting for. And it's a struggle for them. And we talked about this a few weeks ago, how when upon hearing that Jesus would be killed and raised from the dead, it was like they could not get past the fact that he was going to be killed. And once again, we see Matthew chapter 17, verse 23, and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day and they were greatly distressed. That means grieve. They were, they were, they were stricken with the, the deepest grief. Hello? He will raise from the dead. They were stricken with the greatest grief. Why is that? That pain is the same pain that was expressed in the Garden of Gethsemane before Jesus' public arrest and crucifixion. And so Jesus is is beginning to reveal more and more of the truth about his death. He's preparing these men. And what's so important about this distress and this grief is that Jesus is merely revealing more and more information to these disciples And we need to give them a little bit more credit. And what I mean by that is, it's kind of like when you were a kid and you were taking a test. If you knew all the answers to that test and you watched your friends take the test and you judged them because they were like, why are they struggling with this calculus test? Well, you know all the answers. 
And we stand in an era of time where we have the complete canon of Scripture. It's full. It's complete. There is nothing being added to it. We are looking back into history and we are seeing things that have already happened. And we have a broader, clearer picture. That's called progressive revelation. So this distress that the disciples have, they are in the middle of that progressive revelation. They are hearing things for three years, day by day. They are continually hearing these things, these new truths, and it is just grieving them because they don't have all the puzzle pieces together. Think with me for a moment about the promise of redemption throughout the whole of Scripture. Can we kind of just do a, 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 a small, short, uh, what we would call a biblical theology? Think about this for a moment. To Adam and Eve, the only truth that they had of the promised redemption was a promise of one who would come and destroy the evil that had entered into the world through them. That's all they had. The one who would crush the head of the serpent. Who is that person? How would that happen? What would it be? To Abram, it was the promise that of all the people of the earth that would come through his lineage, that he and his descendants would be a blessing. So from, with, from within those descendants then, there would be the snake crusher. On to Moses. Moses led the people. He did great, amazing things. But in Deuteronomy, we learned that, that there would be a greater prophet that would come up, that would arise greater than Moses. So now this, this, this idea is expanding, that, that the snake crusher that would come from the lineage of Abraham would also be a great prophet, a greater prophet than Moses. And then there's King David. That this destroyer of evil, this blessing to humanity, this great prophet sent from God would also sit on the throne of David for all eternity. An eternal king. A a king greater than the greatest king that Israel had ever seen. So now it's starting to come together. Prophet, priest, king, destroyer of evil. And then Isaiah kind of is, 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 prophesies even a, a greater truth. That this Messiah that would come, this promised one, this anointed one, as they call it, would be a suffering servant who would, who would come not to rule the nations, but would first atone for sin by his own suffering would bring peace to God with the stripes and the wounds that would bring us healing. So we do need to give, for the sake of clarity, we need to give these disciples credit. They, for the second time now, have heard a very weighty truth, and the Word of God is still being revealed to them. The parallel account in Luke chapter 9 of this passage, Luke says that they were astonished at the majesty of God, that the people there were marveling at everything he was doing. And then Jesus says to his disciples, 
The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And it says, But they did not understand the saying, and it was concealed from them. That means even in God and His power and His sovereignty had yet revealed all the truth to these disciples. They were still missing major pieces of the puzzle. A great piece of the puzzle would come on the day, on that glorious Sunday morning when they go to the tomb and the tomb is empty and their minds are blown at all the things that they had remembered and heard from the Lord Jesus. Progressive revelation. I've told you before, I was the weird kid that would be up in my room and I didn't have cable. We lived out in the country, and so that, was, that re- required a satellite dish. So I like to watch Bob Ross on PBS. You guys know what I'm talking about? Bob Ross had it going on. 70s clothes, big afro, but the man could paint. And if you ever watched it, it was hypnotizing. Not only was his voice hypnotizing, but he was so talented. He could take like, I never saw him do this, but he could have taken like a, like a bullet casing and drawn a tree from it. I mean, it was just amazing what this guy could do. But if you notice anything about landscaped art, you know that, that you do it in layers. You don't start drawing trees and, 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 and like a lot of kids and, and some adults some of you, you don't, you don't draw the details first, you draw the landscape first. You draw the sky and, and you draw the ground and then you add to that. You add your little trees and you add your mountain and you use the little whisk brush and you do all these things and you're adding layer upon layer. And so at first, all you see is maybe two colors, but then you're adding this more detail and you're adding mountains and you're adding trees and now you have a waterfall and now you have this little deer and these birds in the sky and it's the details upon the details and the layers upon the layers and That's what God has done throughout history, revealing the truths of Jesus to us until he closes the canon and there's no new revelation. You're not getting it from prophets on TV. You're not getting it from dreams and visions. God has closed the canon. He has given us what we need to understand who Jesus is. So let's give the disciples a little bit of credit. But in the same way, this should lead us to complete awe and humility because God has given us and revealed these truths and he has given us understanding. He has opened your minds, church, to understand these things. He has delivered these gospel truths to us about the Savior and the Lord and so that we should be in awe. And let's be honest, this story leaves a lot of so-called Christians unaffected. Unaffected. They want to pick and choose what they want from the Lord Jesus. The disciples had heard just a little bit and they were grieved in their soul of the death of their Savior or the death of their King and yet we have the full revelation of God and we leave unaffected. May the Holy Spirit do such a grand work in our heart and our life that all we can do is repeat the phrase of the Apostle Paul in Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. 
Paul's basically saying, I can't even go beyond thinking or understanding the depth of God's plan, of his person. I cannot understand. He says, how unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So we stand looking back on the revelation of the word of God, what he has given us, which points to Christ, which points to his sacrificial death, burial, and resurrection. We had the apostles come and, 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 and give commentary and truth inspired by the Holy Spirit about that event, how that brings us into the family of God. When we believe and trust in Christ, it's not just a historical event, it's a transformational change for everyone who believes and trusts in Christ. And it's not just an individual transformational change, but one day Christ will come again because he has risen from the dead, and he will change the whole world. He will restore all things unto himself. So this is a global transformational change that will happen. All because of the Lord Jesus. And we see that. So in knowing all those things, church, how could we leave unaffected? How could we see and understand and live day by day as if that's just another story in a book on our shelf? Instead, may we be in awe, a reverent, fearful awe of God's power and majesty like a clockmaker taking little bitty cogs and fitting them together throughout time and history to make everything work and purpose for his glory. Everything, your life, every event, every single detail fitting together so that you could come to know Christ so that you can understand the revelation that we've been given, but on a greater scale, that God is doing all these things across the world so that he can bring people from every tongue, tribe, and nation to bow down and believe in this Jesus who was sent. We cannot even fathom, unless you have gotten on a plane and flown halfway around the world, we cannot fathom going into an area of the world and, and saying, let me tell you about Jesus, and people going, who are you talking about? We can't imagine that. But that exists all over our world. And God is bringing, sending people to tell them about Jesus. And one day, those people will believe and there will be myriads of people surrounding the throne of Jesus Christ, worshiping him, that heard about him and believed in him in the most simplistic places in the jungle or on mountaintops or in cities. God's doing all that by his power and his majesty. That is his redeeming plan. That's what he's trying to get his disciples to understand. 
but they don't have all the pieces. Verse 24. Verse 24 through 27 has one truth. And it's about the redemption of Jesus Christ. Jesus enters with Peter. And now they're in Capernaum. And Capernaum is Peter's hometown. And there they encounter a collector. This would be like a Jewish man collecting a tax. And he goes up to Peter and he asks, hey, does your teacher not pay the tax? Now, what tax is this? Well, this is the temple tax. That's what your little heading says in your Bible. Now, we can move forward from there, or we can really begin to understand what is this temple tax. So to understand that, hold your place here, flip all the way back in the Old Testament to Exodus chapter 30. Jesus is setting up through the prophet Moses, setting up a place of worship. Exodus chapter 30, he has been given, he is giving Moses the truths of, for his covenant people. And look in verse 11. Well, it, it, let me just kind of, let me lead up to this. So starting in verse 20, uh, chapter 26 of Exodus, he is giving all these directives about how to set up the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the place where God dwelt. It was, a, uh, it was a movable place. It was a tent. It was replaced later on in history by the temple. And so in 26 and, and, and beyond, they're, they're, Moses is receiving these precise instructions about how to build this and what these items within the temple or the tabernacle mean. So there's this specific things, and every one of these things have significance not only to the people of that day, but to us. They all point to Jesus. But in verse 30, in verse 11, chapter 30, verse 11, says this, The Lord said to Moses, When you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them that there be no plague among them when you number them. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, half a shekel. According to the shekel of the sanctuary, the shekel is 20 geras, half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more, the poor shall not give less than the half shekel when you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives. You shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it to the service of the tent of the meeting that it may bring the people of Israel to remember before the Lord so as to make atonement for your lives. It's a lot of history here. Let me make it pretty simple. The Lord used 
armies. He would form armies from the people of Israel. And so when we read in the Old Testament of the people of Israel being counted in a census, the major reason for that count was for the Lord's army. They would count the number of men, particularly 20 years and up. They're not interested in little kids for the Lord's army. They're counting these men to have a number, and then that number represented the blessing of the, from the Lord for Israel. Hey, you have a great army. God has provided this army for you. He has provided these men for you. And upon counting them, those men would be required once a year after they were counted to pay uh, uh, or, or to give an offering to the Lord. And then clearly, it, the word is used Two different themes throughout all of Scripture, ransom money or atonement money. It was a price signifying, in essence, that they were giving their life to serve God as the people of Israel. Now, we're not, we're not necessarily familiar with this in America, but there are many countries in the world that when you turn 18, you serve in the military. So you are required to give your life to serve your nation or your country. These men were counted. This census money was given as an offering to the Lord to say, I am willing to sacrifice my life and I offer this money to God as what they call atonement money, ransom money. What's interesting about this money is, is in verse 15 of Exodus, it's in verse, chapter 30, verse 15, the rich shall not give more, the poor shall not give less than the half shekel when you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives. So Israel, these Jewish men, year by year, were counted. And as they were counted, that, that money was given once a year. Fast forward to Jesus' day, it's still given. It's still being practiced. And the important part of that is, is that that money, once it was given to the Lord, was used to take care of the tabernacle and the temple. Matter of fact, many people believe because of the, 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 um, the, the form of payment in that day, they didn't have coins back then, so it was actually a, a, a scale of measure, but they were given silver, and so they would give silver for that offering, and many people believe that it was that very silver given in the census tax that was melted down and made the posts that held the tent of meeting up or the tabernacle up, so that as men would, would offer their sacrifices, they would be reminded of the very lives that they have dedicated to the Lord. By seeing these silver posts holding up the temple. So again, fast forward to Jesus' day. Now they're under Roman rule. We're told here that the requirement was, was a, a dididrachma, which is two drachmas. Okay, a drachma was a day's wage, just like a denarius was a day's wage. A drachma was a Greek currency. 
A denarius was a Roman currency. Peter is asked from this man about the two drachma tax, which, by the way, is half a shekel. Same amount. Mount never changed. Still practicing this in Jesus' day. What's interesting about this passage that really got me thinking in our pre-young age Sunday school stories is that this story never tells us, one, that Peter ever goes to the lake and pulls the money out. We're just told that, that he's commanded to do it. We assume he does it. But I'm pretty sure I remember coloring a little picture with Peter pulling the, the fish out. It doesn't necessarily matter that, that, that this actually, um, that the, the tax was paid. I, I believe that it was paid, but the teaching lesson is what's important. The teaching lesson is where we focus. Notice what he says to Peter. He says, Peter, from whom do kings of the earth take their toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when Peter answers from others, Jesus says, then the sons are free. Now here's where he's going with this. Again, Jesus using his amazing teaching style, knowing this question has come, said, let's make this an object lesson. Do kings of this earth, Peter, tax their own children, or do they just tax other people? Pretty simple, right? Do they, do they collect taxes from their sons and their daughters? No, of course not. That's why Jesus says, then the sons are free. Hopefully you're beginning to see that Jesus is making a simple point. If the kings of the earth don't tax their sons, then why would the king of the world tax me? I.e. Jesus, as the son of the king. Not this small, meager, earthly king, but the king of the universe. Why should I pay taxes, he's saying. Then the sons, he says, are free. Now what's interesting is that there's an obligation here. The obligation that Jesus is trying to show us is that he has no obligation to anything of this earth. Remember, it was necessary for Jesus to die. He was willing to come and die. And by that, we are eternally grateful for his sacrifice. But he was not obligated to pay this, this tax because he was a greater king than the earthly kings who were requiring it. So in essence, he's basically telling Peter, listen, I am a greater king. And what's interesting is, is that if verse 26 stops after the sons are free, we would have a whole other discussion on our hands. You know why? Because when we come to Christ, we become sons of the king. So then we also would not be obligated 
And we'd have all these discussions, and we still do in church, even though Jesus keeps going about do we really have to, to submit to the, the things of the government and the things and the rules and the stipulations of, 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 of governmental issues such as taxes. Verse 27 is very clear when he says, however. But we won't go there yet. The obligation then is that Jesus comes into the the city, and he is being asked to pay a tax that reflects who he is. He is the king. He is the one to be worshipped in the temple. The very tax that he is being asked to pay is the very uh, offering that is given to himself. So in, us, in essence, to ask Jesus to pay a tax that goes back to the temple is to say, Jesus, pay a tax that's an offering to yourself as the king of glory and the Lord of all. He was, had no obligation. No need to offer a, a, an offering to himself as the son of God. But in that lack of obligation, let us see the humiliation of our Lord. The one who came and suffered and died who humbles himself and teaches his young disciple Peter the importance of the mission that's set before him. Don't miss and focus merely on the tax and not see the greater suffering servant in this act where Jesus is humbling himself to say, I am not obligated, but I will do so anyway. Why? So they will not be offended. So they will not take an offense. So they will not cause disruption so that my mission will be diverted. Instead, he is focused on the redemptive plan of God, willing to not just go to the cross, but to suffer and die on the way and on the cross, even if he has to humble himself. This is the Lord of glory. He deserves all honor and worship and praise. He does not need to be bothered with paying taxes, and yet he pays taxes. Church, this is a this is a humbling truth. It's a humbling truth in our minds, in our thoughts, when we think that we are so obligated as people, that we deserve, we have so many rights as people, and when people violate those rights, we are more willing to stand upon the violation of those rights than being focused on the mission that Jesus has given us. You following me? We want to plant our flag and fight our battles like the Maccabees of, the Jewish, of Jewish history instead of thinking and understanding about the mission that the Messiah has sent us on to be a blessing to the nations. To be focused on the mission that Jesus has sent us on to spread the gospel, to love our neighbor God does not ask us to, to submit to, the, um, to, to mistreatment. He, he does not want us to be um, 
Well, we're going to lose our dignity because our identity rests in an eternal king, an eternal ruler. So when your bosses disrespect you, your teacher, your kids' teachers don't treat you with respect or, or kindness, when your neighbor scoffs at you and laughs at you, when you are mistreated, if you find your identity in those things, you will always be grieving and distressed and miserable. But when you find your identity in Christ, the one who was humiliated to the point of death when he deserved all the glory and all the praise, but he steps away from that glory so that he could die for your sins, not his sins, then you're willing to lose that. You're willing to accept that disrespect. Because as we're told, we are suffering for the Lord's sake according to his name and for his glory. And so Jesus says to Peter, however, not to give offense to them, Go to the sea, cast a hook, take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Remember, half a shekel was the tax. Now it's enough for two people. What's Jesus doing? Jesus is giving Peter his atonement money. To me, This is the same picture, the same idea as Abraham sacrificing his son. And at the, at the moment, Jesus provides the substitute. That substitute in that momentary thing taught Abram faith. But in the long run, in a greater fulfillment, it points to the, the sacrifice, the substitute that is provided for us. The atoning substitute Jesus, in his miraculous way, tells Peter to go out. And then in the the coin that will be in the one fish that he catches will be enough to provide for both of them. It's a picture of redemption. It's a picture of what Christ is coming to do. To provide. From the application of this, we see Great truths, truths of awe and, and, and worship of our king who is working all these things. He can take a fish with a coin in its mouth. He can put that coin in its mouth and he can use that illustration for Peter to teach him about the, the, the temple tax, that that temple tax points to Jesus because he is the one who makes atonement for sin. And he's providing that for Peter. And that's it. We don't know anything else about this story. We don't know what kind of fish. But the story is there. And, it, and it's, it's pointing to Christ. And in that pointing to Christ and his redemption, we understand that because of that redemption, when we believe and trust in Jesus, we are then transformed people. And in that transformation, as I said, we find our identity in Christ and not in the things of this world. So in the same way, we submit 
to the governments around us. We submit to the authorities that God has placed in our lives so that we can continue on the mission that God has given us. Church, don't get so wrapped up in defending yourselves that you're not first defending the Lord Jesus. Seeking his glory and his honor, knowing what he has provided for you. That's why this story to me seems clear to be a beautiful illustration of what Jesus is telling his disciples, that the son of man will be delivered into the hands of men, they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. He will submit to that, that suffering and that torture and he will willingly go to the cross because it was set on him by the Father to do so and then he will be raised victoriously from the dead providing the atoning work necessary for us to be free from guilt and shame and sin. And you know what? It made a pretty big impact on Peter. Because in Peter chapter 1, He reminds us in his work of the New Testament that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blem or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. 